0: Hello, welcome back to the Refuting Calvinism YouTube channel. Today, uh, we're going to have another installation in the series called Calvinism Strongholds. Now this series um, is go- it includes videos that I've done on the most used passages as proof text by Calvinists. Uh, in fact, the ones they use the most, and the ones that are the strongest ones is to support their position. So we looked at John chapter six. You can watch that one right here. Uh, we looked at Romans chapter nine. You can watch that one right here. And we looked at uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You can watch that one here. But today uh, we're going to look at probably the one that's used the third most. Um, Romans nine, John six are pretty tightly close in one and two, maybe one and one a. But this one is, you know. If it's one way, this is the second most used, or it's the third most used passage by Calvinists to support their views. Um, they believe that Ephesians chapter one, uh, going through verse fourteen, uh, that it supports unconditional election, uh, and that it supports uh, perseverance or preservation of the saints. Not only that, it supports double predestination or unconditional reprobation, and also supports supposedly in verse eleven uh, that. Uh, all things whatsoever happens are decreed or ordained by God. It's part of the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith. All things whatsoever come to pass are decreed, ordained, predestined, determined by God. So, we're going to look at all these issues here in this video, and hopefully you'll, you'll listen very carefully and listen very closely, and hopefully you'll set aside your biases if you're a Calvinist, and just really listen to what the alternative is to your view. And uh, hopefully you'll see some of the consistencies if you're going to hold to your view with this passage. So, let's go ahead and let's, let's read the passage first. And then after we read the passage, uh, we'll kind of go through it piece by piece and dissect it and see what it actually says. Okay, let's go ahead and read it. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, we'll read through verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having pre- predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? Okay, now let's go ahead and, and just look at this here. Now, something that I want you to, to, I want to point out to you here is this, this, this phrase or a similar phrase uses in him, or something similar to that. And you see the plural form is always used here: we, us, we, us, over and over again. So I just want to go through this one more time and just point all these. Times out. You see, in Jesus, in Christ, in Him, in the blood. But I want to, I want you to point. I want to point them out to you. Okay. So let's verse one. It says, uh, "To the saints who are in this and faithful in Christ Jesus." Okay. And then you go down to uh, to verse three. The end of verse three. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse four. Just as He chose us in Him. Verse five. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. In verse six. He made us accepted in the Beloved. Verse 7, In Him, we have redemption through His blood. So, in Him and through His blood. And then down in verse 10, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. Verse 11, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ, verse 13, in him you also trusted. Towards the end of verse, uh, verse 13, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So all this is in Jesus, in him. And and this is a corporate election that God has, a plan that God has, uh, that he's going to, uh, we're going to be adopted as sons in Jesus Christ. So the question, this, this election that God has decided, that has decided, worked according to the good pleasure of His will. Uh, Maybe even eternity past. was that in Him, in Christ, we would be saved. So, this election that God has for His people is in Jesus Christ. Now, this passage nowhere says, and nowhere in the Bible does it say, that God chooses those who will have faith. Uh, Individually, you're going to have faith, you're not going to have faith, you're going to have faith, you're not going to have faith. No, he's chosen that through Christ, or in Christ, we would be elected, and we'd be saved. So we say, in him, all these times, let's just count how many times, in verse 2 is one time, 3, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 times we have this, in Christ, in him, in himself, in the beloved, by Jesus Christ, in whom? Twelve times we see that. And I think what Paul is trying to communicate here is the very opposite of what the Calvinists try to communicate through. This is that uh, that God is choosing each individual who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. Well, you're going to be saved, you're not going to be saved. You're going to be saved, you're not going to be saved. It doesn't happen like that. Or some Calvinists would say, the inconsistent ones would say, well, God's only chose the ones who are going to be saved, and those who are not going to be saved, he just leaves them to themselves. Uh, But that's what the Calvinism really teaches. Calvinism teaches that all things whatsoever comes to pass, including sin, is decreed or ordained or predestined or determined by God. And the question I have for the inconsistent Calvinist who believes in this only uh, God predestining those for salvation but not predestining those for damnation is that the sinning that the damned sinners are doing. Were those things decreed, ordained, or predestined by God? Are all things whatsoever come to pass determined by God? And if they are, then the God of Calvinism is determining the sinner's sinning as well as the sinner's damnation. In fact, if, we're, if you're consistent about this, and a logical Calvinist, and you're consistent about this, you, first of all, you must believe in double predestination. But second of all, the people who are going to go to hell, they're not going to hell for being sinners. Christ, uh, God, God, the God of Calvinism, chose eternity past that they would go to hell before they ever sinned, before they ever were alive, before they were ever born. So it has nothing to do with whether uh, he's leaving them to themselves or not and, and letting them go their own way um, because they were born sinners. No, he actively determined which people would go to heaven and which people would go to hell if you're consistent with your Calvinistic viewpoint. What we see here is a corporate election. In Christ, in Him, by Jesus Christ, in the Beloved, in Him, in Himself, in Him, in Him, in Christ, in Him, in whom. The, this is corporate election, so the question becomes, how does someone get in Him, or in the Beloved? Do they get in Him or in the Beloved by an eternal decree, by the God of Calvinism? No. What's going on to verse uh, verse 13, and this is kind of like a, a Paul defining how we are saved. Verse 13, in him you also trusted. So they trusted. God didn't do the trusting for them, they trusted. God didn't decree they would trust, they trusted. God didn't force them to trust, they trusted. It doesn't say they needed to be uh, regenerated first so they can trust. It says, in whom you also trusted. And what happened first? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and then in him... Jesus Christ, they trusted. And through Him, it says in verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. How rich is that grace that through His blood we can have redemption, uh, forgiveness of our sins, that the things we've done wrong in the past, God won't hold them against us any longer, which is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't when uh, the personal righteousness of Jesus Christ is transferred to us and our personal sins are transferred to Him. Forgiveness is when God sees that you're a sinner, sees you deserve hell and He doesn't impute it too, doesn't count it against you, He doesn't hold it against you and He acts as if you had never sinned, treats as if you had never sinned and does not hold your sins against you any longer. Uh, If you want more on, on, on this idea of impute and propitiation, I would encourage you to watch my video called Calvinist Confusion, Impute and Propitiation. You can watch that video right here, but to move on here, uh, in Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, so we'll get into the sealing issue here in a second, and the guarantee here in a second. But I want to backtrack just a few, just for a second here, and kind of give you an idea of what I think Paul is saying here. Okay, uh, Paul is writing to a, the church of Ephesus, uh, which was made up mostly of Gentile believers. <laughs> Paul himself, being a Jew, who the oracles of God were trusted to, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, who the Messiah came to. The Messiah came to the Jews and the Jews alone, except for a Gentile here and there or a Samaritan woman along the way. And even the Gentile woman, he called her a little dog and wasn't willing to give anything to her, and then she kept on coming to him, and he finally blessed her. Uh, but he mostly went to the house of Jews, the house of the Jewish people, because salvation came to them first, and it came through them, because Jesus Christ is of the house of Israel. And uh, But what I want you to see here is in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think what he's doing here is when he's using the word our and we here, he's referring to Jews and Gentiles. And this is an issue that Paul dealt with quite a bit uh, in his ministry. Uh, you see, if we turn to Acts chapter 15 real quick, and I'll, we'll point out a situation here. Uh, Acts chapter 15 and uh, in verse 1 says, And certain men came down from Judea, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and all the, and the elders, and reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, "It is necessary to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses." Now, here, who's this "them"? That this sect of Pharisees who believed—we're talking about the "them" who must be circumcised and must obey the law of Moses to be saved. We're going back to verse. Uh, verse two verse one it says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Um, they're talking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have this this ceremony or this this uh religious rite of of being circumcised on the eighth day. They didn't have that. Gentile nations didn't have that. It was given to the Jewish people alone. And now the Jewish people uh were holding on to their Jewishness and trying to force their Jewishness upon the Gentiles, uh the very thing that Jesus Christ did not command, and the Apostle Paul, as you read through the book of Galatians for yourself, you can see that he's completely against that. Uh, The Gentiles aren't uh, required to be Jews to be saved. Uh, Let's let's read on and see what their response is here. In verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between them, us, and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. Declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles, and after they had become silent, James answered, saying, "Men and brethren, listen to me." And he goes on to talk about what their decision is going to be, and uh, the decision is in verse 19. Uh, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sex immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Okay, so. This issue that Paul was dealing with all the time with these people called the Judaizers. He would come behind Paul's converts, and he'd travel around through modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was called Asia back then. Ephesus, Galatia, uh, Thessalonica. He'd through these areas, you know, in modern-day Greece as well, uh, and he'd be preaching the gospel in Corinth, etc. And these Judaizers would come behind him and tell his converts what he said in Acts 15.1, that unless they can circumcise according to the law of Moses, they cannot be saved. So basically saying you must obey the, the Jewish ceremonial law uh, as well as obeying the moral law of God. But Peter made some very good points here. Peter said that when he spoke to Cornelius, that Cornelius and his whole household were saved after they heard the word of truth and God sealed them with the Holy Spirit and sanctified them, purified their hearts by faith. And notice for all you church or Christ people out there that that when Cornelius received the Holy Spirit, which is the deposit, which is the seal, which is the guarantee of our, our uh, redemption is to come, was given before he was baptized, not after he was baptized. So the sealing into the body of Christ, the, the uh, baptizing into the body of Christ, the immersing into the body of Christ, with Christ as your head, you being part of the body now, was done by faith. And... And uh, the Holy Spirit came and filled them the same way that, he, that the Holy Spirit filled Peter and the other apostles. And, and Peter says, listen, if, if you're going to do this, he's speaking to these, these Pharisees, like the Pharisees who believed in Christ, and these other Judaizers who were coming behind Paul, he says, listen, if you're going to say they need to be circumcised to be saved, you're testing God. Because God put a stamp of approval upon Cornelius and his whole household the moment they believed by faith. The moment they believed. He, he purified their hearts. By faith. So, uh, obviously, in James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who was the the, the first bishop of the Church of Jerusalem, uh, he agreed with them and didn't say anything about the need to get circumcised or be Jewish. Uh, so, this is the issue Paul is dealing with. So, uh, I submit to you that in writing to the Church of Ephesus, he's including them in the we and the us to, to reassure them. Of the facts, of the truth. Uh to fight against this issue with the Judaizers who were coming behind them, who Paul dealt with all throughout his ministry, and he had a real problem with them. He didn't like them at all. I mean he even said to one point, I think, in Galatians, that I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Because they're so focused on this, this little piece of flesh that would be circumcised off of, of someone on the eighth day, or if you're adult later, you know, of course it's not done on the eighth day, it would be done later on if you're an adult in uh, Paul said, this, the cutting off this piece of flesh is not going to save you. Uh, you're purified by faith. And of course, uh, it must be a working faith. A working faith, if it's not a working faith, or a faith that produces holiness and righteousness in someone's life. It's a dead faith and only going to ca- cast you into hell in the end, as James says in his epistle. Uh, but getting back to uh, if Ephesians here, uh, in verse 3, what's going to Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the hour there? the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul and the people he's writing to. There might have been some Jews there as well, but it's mostly Gentiles there, I believe. At the end of verse 3, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Uh, In verse 4, just as he chose us, did he choose us individually? No, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What did he choose us for? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So, Paul is saying here that those who are in him who decide to be in Jesus by faith? They decide to be in Him. Um, that those who are in Him, He's chosen. God has chosen that they that the people who are in Him should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's what God God has chosen for those who are in Him. Uh, verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons. The us once again is Jews and Gentiles. He should not just Jews but Jews and Gentiles. He's predestined both to adoption. How? As sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So the good pleasure of God's will is not that God would just save a few or that God would just save a certain group of people called the Jews or uh, a group of people called the Gentiles or a group of people called the elect, Calvinists. Uh, But no, he chose us in him uh, and this was the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will part is the part where he's saying we'll be chosen in him predestined to adoption of sons by Jesus Christ. That's the good pleasure of God's will, that we can be saved by Jesus Christ, and this is to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. So it's by God's grace that we are accepted in the Beloved. That's the only way we can be, uh, have grace bestowed upon us, or favor bestowed upon us, is, is if we're in the Beloved. If we're not in the Beloved, if we're not in Jesus Christ, which I'll get to more here in a second, if we're not in the Beloved, we don't have grace. We don't have the adoption. Uh, We're not going to be holy without blame before Him in love. So in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. How rich is that grace? That we can have forgiveness of sins, that I can be forgiven of my sins. Uh, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And it it's by His grace that I can have my my sins. I've committed so many I can't even count that high. That Christ would would uh, would uh, allow me to have His grace and take part in His grace. That God would allow me to be in Christ and take part in His grace through Him, which He had made to abound toward us, the Jews and Gentiles. As we, the Jews and Gentiles who have redemption through His blood, uh, made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, have made known to us, Jews and Gentiles, the mystery of His will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, who are the all things here? In the dispensation of times, in the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. In one. So not the separation of Jews and Gentiles, or, or separation because of tribes or tongues or nations or geographical borders, but we're gathered together in one. All things. All things? Now wait a minute, I thought God only wanted some to be saved. No, all things, God wants to gather together all things in one, in Jesus Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Are you a person who's on earth? Are you a person right now who's on earth? He wants you to be in him. He wants to gather you together as one with with your potential brothers and sisters in Christ, in Christ. But you must be in Christ. If you're not in Christ, uh, you can't be one with others. In fact, Jesus said in the last day, there'll be two lines. There'll be the the sheep and the goats. And if you're the goats, you're you're going to hell. If you're part of the sheep, you're in him, and you are gathered together with the others who are in him. In him, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have obtained an inheritance, Jews and Gentiles, in him, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the council's will. Now, verse 11 um, is this verse that Calvinists seem to think says that because it says uh, the purpose of him who works all things according to the council's will. So working all things according to the council's will, they think that means somehow they deduct from this that this means that everything that happens including every rape, child molestation, um, every murder, every, any, any kind of horrible thing you think of, every porn watching, all porn films, all, uh, all homosexuality, that God is working these things according to the counsel of his will. All things. so It's included in all things here. And this just blows my mind that the Calvinist would use such a hermeneutic to interpret this verse in such a way. Because the amazing thing is, when you go to the verse that talk about Christ's atonement, or how, and how God loves the world in John 3.16, or that, he, uh, that he's died for all, even those who've rejected him, uh, even those who he bought with his blood, the false teachers, that when all is used in those verses, they'll say it really doesn't mean all. But when we come to this verse... In verse 11, the purpose of him who works all things according to the council's will, that they say that all means universally every single thing. And really the only thing I've heard, and it's, I think it's from Mr. James White, the only thing I've heard is that if if all sin has not been decreed, ordained, or predestined by God, including rape and child molestation, I know Calvinist should accuse me of being emotional. I'm not emotional. I'm simply just declaring the facts here. This is what you, your doctrine said. I'm not appealing to emotion by talking about rape and child molestation. Those are horrible things. And to say that God predestines those things in my mind is a malign the character of God. But the thing I've heard Mr. James White say is that if, if God hasn't decreed ordained predestined all these things, then it is purposeless evil. They're useless evil. So, he rather have this, this God that is purposefully creating and ordaining and predestining these evil things. he rather have that kind of God than a God who allows evil and that can use it for His glory and can bring some good out of it. Which, there is a difference. If you're a Calvinist, hear this. There's a big difference between God allowing something and then using it for His glory and turning it around for good, or openly not turning it around for good and then damning the people who are engaged in these things for His glory, which He will do if they don't repent and trust in Christ. So There's a big difference between God allowing something to happen and doing those things and God decreeing, ordaining, predestining, or determining things—every single thing, every abortion—decreed or ordained by God. Are you kidding me? So that's that's they think verse 11 is teaching this, and it just—it really just blows my mind that they would use such a hermeneutic that would bring uh, character assassination to God's character. It just blows my mind. But verse 11 is not saying what they're saying is saying because if we go back up to verse five. We'll see what the good pleasure of his will is. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So what is, he, what is he predestining according to the good pleasure of his will? That we, the Jews and Gentiles, us there in verse 5, would be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean God is predestining uh, or determining or ordaining all things or decreeing all things that are come to pass. I don't understand how you would get that out of this. If you're a Calvinist, please hear me. I don't understand how you would get that out of this. You really need to rethink your hermeneutics when coming to verse 11 and take just the passage itself as a whole and look at the rest of scripture. I mean, how can God be holy, 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 as Isaiah 6 says, when the angels are singing before a throne and Isaiah has a revelation of God lift up and they're saying holy, holy, holy. How can God be that and have his hands Not stained with blood, as Christians are, for not preaching the gospel in Ezekiel 33, but have his hands stained with sin. And then damn those people, not because he leaves them to themselves and chooses not to elect them, but but damns them for what he's predestined them to do. ordained or decreed them to do. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. And it's not scriptural, it's not biblical. And if you think it's biblical and scriptural because of the passages that you think the Bible teaches, you need to go back to Romans 9 and read it again. Please, watch my video on it. Here it is again right there. Or John 6, right right here. Watch those videos, please. Not that I'm the uh, the all-knowing guru about these issues, but there is an alternative, a biblical alternative, using sound hermeneutics to interpret these passages properly. So you really need to rethink what you're saying here. So in verse 11, it works all things according to the counsel of his will. It doesn't mean all things universally. It's talking about these things where God is predestining us to adoption us Jews and death us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, it just mean, simply means that God has an overall plan uh, from the beginning that he would we would be adopted we'd have forgiveness of sins, redemption through his blood in Jesus Christ. that is what God has uh, has determined that he's working according to the counsel of his will that all things universally. Why would you say that all means all here but you go to these other pastors and talk about the atonement of Christ and all doesn 't mean all. You want to know why? Not because you're using sound hermeneutics and come to the scriptures without any biases, but simply because you have this philosophical system called Tulip or Calvinism and you go to the Scriptures with it and try to force it upon the Scriptures. And you have to interpret Scriptures in a certain way because of your starting point of Tulip. Not because you get it from the Scriptures. Because I'll tell you this, every Scripture that a Calvinism uses, and I've looked at them all I think, every one they use has a has an opposite interpretation that in my mind is the right interpretation. But let's, let's move on from verse 11. That we who first trusted in Christ, we, Jews and Gentiles, well actually the we here, this is where I think it changes here. The we here, because of what it says, the we who first trusted, the we here is not the Jews and the Gentiles now. Now the we in verse 12 is just Jews. Why? Because it says, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The ones who first trusted in Christ were Jews. They're the ones that, uh, that Christ came to and preached to. They're the ones that the Apostles preached to until finally Peter went to Cornelius by a vision from God. God gave Cornelius a vision. God gave Peter a vision. And only because of that did Peter go. He was very hesitant to go. And even when he did go and they got saved, he had to go report back to the Jews because he was eating in a Gentile's house. So they had a real issue with this. but. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ, that we, there's the Jews, and verse 13, in him you also trusted. Now it's the Gentiles. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth. So the word of truth was brought to them, first by Peter to Cornelius, and then Paul, who was called the apostle to the Gentiles. And Barnabas went with them as well eventually. And then Timothy and Silas and many other uh, preachers went to them. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom? Christ. You also trusted you, the Gentiles, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's that's what happened to Cornelius. He was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise because he trusted Christ. He heard the gospel preached for the first time from the mouth of Peter. He was saved in the very same way. uh, He received the Holy Spirit in the very same way that Peter did in the apostles on the day of Pentecost probably for a sign to Peter, because he was pretty bullheaded sometimes, to show him that God was putting his stamp rule approval upon these Gentile men who believed by faith before they were circumcised, before they were baptized. God was trying to show this to Peter. And he showed the same thing to Paul and to Barnabas, as you go back to Acts 15, and, and they talk about the miracles and the, and the things that were done through them, people being saved through them as they reported to the council in Jerusalem. So you also trust you were sealed the Holy Spirit promised. promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? So let's let's go back uh, one more time to verse nine here. Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. Okay, so the good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. Now we've seen this. I think that's the, that's the second time we see this. Let me see again in verse eleven the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So this good pleasure working according to the counsel of His will. It's a mystery of His will. What is this mystery that we're talking about here? And this is going to give more credence to what I'm saying here. As far as this mystery and this good pleasure being both Jews and Gentiles being saved, uh, brought together as one in Christ, adopted as sons in Christ, having forgiveness and redemption through Christ and through His blood. Well, let's look at the very book of Ephesians to find out how Paul defines what this mystery is. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 12. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So this grace of God was given to Paul for them. That's the dispensation he was talking about back over here in in verse 10. of Ephesians 1. How that by revelation he he made known to me the mystery. Well, there's the mystery. Now let's find out what this mystery is. As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of this promise in Christ through the gospel. In Christ through the gospel. What is the mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, the body of Christ and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. What's the mystery? That Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body uh, and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Praise God. Praise God. I'm a Gentile. Praise God for that. Uh, verse 7 Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me who am in less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the Church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have all boldness, and and access with confidence through faith in Him. So, once again, it says in verse 11, he, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord? What is that? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery. That is what he's a com- That is the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, and whom we, Jews and Gentiles alike, have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. And Paul says in verse 8, that uh, uh, to me who am less than the least of all the saints. And why does he say that? Because he was a persecutor of the saints. That's why he says he's, a, he's the least of all the saints. He's a persecutor of the saints. And God took him out of the muck and mire, of giving approval to murdering saints and putting them in jail and having them killed, to being a writer of half the New Testament and being the apostle to Gentiles. Oh, how he must have stayed humble just because of that alone. Uh, He never forgot where he came from, which is a temptation for a lot of us to do, to forget where we came from. So the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So, the mystery of his will. The Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body through the gospel in Christ Jesus. That is election, corporate election in Christ. Now, individuals who are in this corporate body of Jesus Christ, but it's in him and through him that we're saved, have forgiveness of sins, have redemption through his blood. So it's a corporate election because you have to be in him to be saved. have to be in him to have forgiveness of sins. have to be in him to have redemption through his blood. But if you're not in him, you won't have that. The question is, does God predestine who will be in him and who won't? No. It doesn't say that that anywhere in Scripture. What are we predestined for? That we should be holy. Those who are in him should be holy and without blame before him in love, according to verse 4 of Ephesians 1. That's what we're predestined to. We're predestined, he predestined us, the Jews and Gentiles alike, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. That's the good pleasure of his will. (laughs) Now let's go back to verse 13 and 14, real quick, and look at this issue of preservation or perseverance of the saints. And him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and him also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now this sealing here, is this a seal that can't be broken kind of seal? No, no, no. It's a seal of ownership. God putting his stamp of approval upon you, saying, you're my child. Uh, You know, as Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 16 says, let me just read that to you real quick. It says, uh, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. For, let's go back to verse 15 actually. Uh, or actually verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bonds again to fear, but by, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Amen. And then also, I think in Galatians, uh, it says something similar. Galatians chapter uh, let's see here chapter four. and verse six, "And because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, "Abba, Father." So this, this is a, a stamp of ownership upon you. God has put a seal of his holy Spirit upon you, has given it to you. And this seal of the Holy Spirit, it's not the seal that can't be broken once again, the seal of ownership, uh, is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. This guarantee here. What is this guarantee? Uh, I think it's the Greek word, arabone, and it means a down payment or an earnest. And I would liken it to someone who goes out and buys a vehicle today. Now, Christians, you you probably shouldn't be engaging in this kind of activity, but uh, if you were to go out and get a vehicle, a new vehicle, I would recommend a used vehicle, personally. If you go out and get a new vehicle, let's say you want to get a loan and I, I recommend saving them up ahead of time, getting a used vehicle, and then upgrading later on as you have the money. Don't get into debt, okay, to get a vehicle. But anyway, to, get, to move on, let's just say you went to debt to get a vehicle. Let's say you're going to buy a $20,000 vehicle. And they say you have to put at least $2,000 down, 10% down. And you put $2,000 down. That's the bone, That's the guarantee. That's the, the down payment. Or the earnest that you put down. And... You drive that cost a lot. And you sign a contract that says you're going to pay so much per month over so many months, but at the end of the contract, if you fulfill the requirements of the contract, then, and only then, is the vehicle literally yours and that you own it. Now, between uh, the time you make the down payment the time that you are going to make the final payment, it still is your vehicle in some to some degree and in some sense because you, you've pledged through a contract and through this down payment uh that you're gonna fulfill this contractual uh, obligations. But what would happen if after paying for a year or two, let's say you had two years left in the contract, you stop making payments. What's gonna happen? What what is that what is that dealership or that loan company gonna do? They're gonna find you, they're gonna take your vehicle back, they're gonna repossess it. And guess what? All the money you pay, the down payment, all the payments you made, are gonna mean nothing. They're going to take your vehicle, they're probably going to go to an auction, sell it off to somebody else. Let's say you still owe $10,000 on it. And at the auction, they get 5000 for it. You still owe $5,000. But even if you pay this five, which you're going to have to pay this $5,000, otherwise you're probably going to have some, some problems with the law, even after paying this $5,000, it's not going to be yours anymore. So there's a contract here. And the contract we have of God, this guarantee, this deposit, this seal that God puts on on as ownership, that we are his, we belong to him as sons adopted into the family of Jesus Christ, the family of the faith, this down payment of the Holy Spirit is a, a, it's a deposit only. It's not a full payment. It's not a complete payment. And the contractual obligation that you must fulfill is that you must persevere to the end. God doesn't do the persevering for you. God doesn't preserve you against your own will. You must persevere to the end. Uh, otherwise you will not be saved. So, that's why it says at the end of verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, see that future there? Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So, we're not completely redeemed yet until the end, when we're completely redeemed as his purchased possession. We must endure to the end. We must uh, persevere to the end in order to be saved. So, there's an initial salvation here where we're sealed, a seal of ownership with the Holy Spirit, who is a down payment or a deposit or earnest of our salvation. But we must persevere in So there's initial salvation here, and then there's final salvation. But this period in between here is called probation. And uh, I've done a whole video on this. So uh, if you want to discuss that, you know, go to that video. Please watch that whole video first. I'm not going to get too much into that. But you can watch that video right, right there. So, 1st 13 and 14, that does not support perseverance or preservation of the saints at all. And discussing these uh, last two verses of Ephesians one, thirteen, and fourteen, uh, and discussing perseverance of saints and once they've always saved brings me uh, back to this issue of being in him. Uh, the question arises in discussing the perseverance of saints and once they've always saved the issue is does someone who is genuinely in him, is he guaranteed to remain in him Christ, that is, until the end of his days. Well, let's, let's just look at one more passage of scripture real quick uh, to see what Jesus said about this in John 15. It says this, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So we have this issue of being in him, in me, as Jesus talking here many times. You know the word abide is a Greek word meno, and it means to remain. Uh, so if I were to say to uh, a friend of mine, John McLuhan, said, uh, John, remain in the car. And uh, But for me to say that to John, he would have to already be in the car. If I said, John, remain in the car, and he was outside the car, and the doors are locked, and he couldn't get in the car, he'd say, Kerrigan, what are you talking about? So the same rule applies here to Jesus. He's telling, he's telling this to his apostles, he said, if you abide in me, if you remain in me. So let's go back and read it one more time, and use the word remain instead of abide, because some people have a misunderstanding what abide is, but the Greek word meno means to remain. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it remains in the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who remains in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather and throw them into the fire and they are burned. So if there is no possibility that someone who's already in Christ or abiding in Christ uh, that they would depart from Christ or not remain in Christ or not abide in Christ if there's no possibility that that happened then Christ's words here are worthless. They're useless. It's a useless warning. But he's simply warning his own apostles here that if you don't remain in me, uh, if anyone does not abide in me or remain in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So that's what will happen to each person who decides not to remain or abide in Christ. So you must remain in him. If you depart from him, if you cease to bear fruit, because you're not remaining in him or abiding in him, you're cast out as a branch and withered, and so there, there you go, once again, Ephesians 1, and 14, combined with this passage, dealing with the same exact issue of remaining or being in Christ, uh, shows that you can depart from the faith, be cut off, or fall away from the faith. Please uh, study this out for yourself. Uh, put aside your biases, if you're a Calvinist, and just read it for what it actually says here. And uh, try to understand, friend, if you're a Calvinist, that... Uh, I think what you're doing here, especially with verse 11, is you're relying on the character of God. This is not the God of the Bible. The God that, that you're trying to promote through your bad interpretation of Ephesians 1 is not the God of the Bible. And uh, I, I think I've shown that sufficiently today. So hopefully you'll consider these things. You'll study this out for yourself. Uh, stop going to your teachers like R.C. Sproul and and uh, uh, John Piper and John MacArthur and, and Paul Washer whoever else you're, or Tim Conway, whoever else you're going to study stuff for yourself. First John 227. Go read it and follow it, obey it, and understand it. And then look this up for yourself. Uh, hopefully this is edifying to you, encouraging to you. It was, it was easy to understand. If you have questions, please post questions in the bottom of this video and I look forward to interaction with you. And as long as you've watched the whole video and you've tried to understand what I'm coming from I, and you're going to be I'm not going to engaging in helmet attacks or strawman attacks. I look forward to engaging uh, you in this in this on this issue. Uh, so that's it for today. Uh, God bless you, and uh, talk to you soon.